G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our conversation today is a story that grew out of many other stories, a story of the past that affects us now. So many listeners will be familiar with the amazing books of C.S. Lewis. Now, if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, or any of the Narnia Chronicles series, you may be fascinated with insights into the life of C.S. Lewis and exploring his imagination. C.S. Lewis was not only a wonderful writer of fiction, but is also renowned as one of the preeminent Christian apologists of the last century. Our special guest today is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author, Patty Callahan has just released a new book that will have an instant fan base, having sold what is likely somewhere close to or more than 200,000 copies of her earlier bestseller, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Her new book is called Once Upon a Wardrobe. It's a story inspired by C.S. Lewis's ability to change the world and captivate hearts including those of a terminally ill boy named George and his logic-driven sister Megs. It's described as being full of heart, wisdom and hope, a feel-good story that takes readers to a deeper level exploring the power of myth and story in our lives. Patty Callahan and our absolute privilege, uh, Patty's joining us from the United States. Patty, welcome back to 2020. I am so happy to be here again. I am so happy to talk to you again. Well, Patty, yes, it was a few years ago now. We were talking about your book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, and exploring one of the great love stories of modern times between C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman, and it's gone on to be a huge success for you. That was such a magical time to become fascinated by this courageous, fiery, interesting, and yes, complicated woman, Joy Davidman, and yet to have it resonate with so many people who not only got to meet her, but got to meet C.S. Lewis in a brand new way. And of course, you had the, in some sense, an ultimate compliment when Joy's son, Douglas Gresham, uh, described your writing as more accurate than most biographical essays about his mother. That must be a significant compliment. Wow. When I heard him say that on a podcast, I sat back in my chair with gratitude. And my goal in writing that book was to tell it from her point of view so much of that improbable love story had been told from other people's points of view and also from Lewis's point of view, but not from hers. And so my goal and what I did was what I say, right from the seat of her heart, right from behind her eyes, right from her point of view. And so for him to say that, 
means my goal was accomplished in that I was telling the story from their point of view and not from this kind of logical, you know, dry point of view, but from the seat of a heart. And I think that's what made it feel more true to him than biography. Well, Patty, lots of our listeners will be familiar with the Narnia Chronicles and especially The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, not only wonderful books but made into incredible movies as well. For listeners who are not so familiar with C.S. Lewis, what is it that captivates your heart and imagination by writing about him and uh, stories based on his stories? Wow, I mean, everything Lewis writes is enduring. You can pick up a Lewis book when you're a child or in high school or college and then pick it up again later, and it means something completely different. His books are like living things. They come alive for you in different ways at different times. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for me and for many others, is such an enduring story that it is as if it was written thousands of years ago. It just, it is passed from generation to generation. He touched on something very, very powerful that goes beyond the logical mind that you've picked up on for your latest book. Uh, The ability to be able to tell story that has incredibly deep and even spiritual meaning. Any thoughts on just the way you might describe how that, and I know we'll use the word magic and magical through our conversation, Mm. but there's something uh, that in our own sort of natural mindset, we understand like magical things. Any thoughts here about how C.S. Lewis was able to be such an incredible communicator? He has a great phrase, which he uses when he talks about why he wrote the books he wrote in the way that he wrote them. And he says that he wants to sneak past our watchful dragons. And it is such an amazing way of describing how he meant to and wants to hit us in the heart while sneaking right past our logic so that we don't have an argument or a defense that, that kind of rises up when we start to read. And that he was well aware that he wanted to sneak past our watchful dragons and that he was well aware that we have watchful dragons means that he understands way more than most writers do that there are natural defenses that rise up when we read a story that we think is trying to preach to us or change us or teach us or make us think differently about the world than we already do, because as Carl Jung, the you know, very famous psychoanalyst says, it is only story that transforms us, meaning we are not transformed by lists or an appendix or logic. We are transformed through the power or what we might call the magic of stories. And Lewis understood that and wanted to sneak past our watchful dragons of logic and was 
incredibly well able to do so. Let me just be biblically Christian here for a moment, because do you think that C.S. Lewis captured something of what we understand from the way the way that the Bible communicates to us. And, you know, so many listeners will be so familiar with the parables that Jesus told, that were stories that were so appropriate in his time, in a way of talking about how those parables communicate down through the ages, generation to generation, a little bit like sneaking past our watchful dragons. Do you think there's something there that he's picked up? as the way the biblical writers and the way God has been able to reveal himself through Scripture? Oh, I love that you see that. I love that you noticed that. Because absolutely, when Jesus was teaching, he wasn't giving them a list of things to believe or do. He was telling a story. Because that is how we reach the heart. And yes, I am quite sure, without being able to speak for Lewis, that he understood that same thing, which is that that is the way to communicate to someone if you want to touch their heart or show them Christ or reveal Christ through whether it is forgiveness or hope or redemption, that is done through story. Well, I think you've got the attention of our listeners today, Patty, because you're endeavouring to sneak past our watchful dragons with a story about lots of stories. Your new book is called Once Upon a Wardrobe. And it's got a main, the main characters, George and Megs. I wonder if you'd like to just set up how your story actually takes a hold of our imaginations. Oh, thank you. Yes, The book is set in 1950, in the winter, in Worcester, England, and in Oxford, England. And it is about the power of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It is about a little boy named George who is ill, and in October of 1950, exactly 71 years ago this week, that book burst onto the scene. That book showed up and the world sat up and took notice. And in my novel, a little boy named George noticed and he read it back to front and front to back and hoped the wardrobe would pop out and open up to Narnia for him. And he asks his sister Megs, who is a math and physics genius and attends Oxford, to track down the tutor who teaches at her university and ask him, where did Narnia come from? And at first she refuses because she believes that the world is founded on math and physics and logic. And she tells her brother, it is just a children's story. It is just imagination and a made up thing. But she loves her brother, and she tracks down Mr. C.S. Lewis and asks him, please just give me a simple answer for my brother. Where did Narnia come from? But he will not give her a simple answer. And as you and I know, simple answers are rarely the real answer anyway. And instead, Lewis begins to tell her stories 
from his life. Light stories, dark stories, broken stories, stories full of hope, but also stories full of sadness and shows us as readers and as writer how he took the ordinary moments in his life and turned them to extraordinary magical worlds. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Well, our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Paddy Callahan, who has just released a new book that will have an instant fan base based on the bestseller status of her earlier book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Her new book is called Once Upon a Wardrobe. Uh, Patty, if we're talking once upon a wardrobe and magic and magical things, I wonder whether we can talk about the way you've dealt with how C.S. Lewis was so powerfully able to talk about living in a world of make-believe, fairy tales, uh, books and drawings. Uh, These are all a part of, I guess, your character George and uh, some ways that Megs uh, interacts with the sorts of questions that George has. How do you think about the world of make-believe? You know, that was part of my inspiration for this book was this idea that We have to plant our flag in either imagination or logic, that this is an either or instead of an and both. And it is something Lewis and his wife, Joy Davidman, struggled with. And one of my favorite quotes by Joy Davidman is that she realized life could not forever be endured by logic alone. And Lewis, one of my favorite quotes of his, is that imagination is the organ of meaning. And they both were constantly trying, because they were geniuses, constantly trying to find a way to blend and meld and marry imagination and logic together. And when Lewis was asked so many times about the origins or the beginnings of the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, he would often answer that he couldn't peg it down. But at the same time, when he was 16, he had an image. So it came down like you're talking about the art of imagination. He had an image of a fawn walking in a snowy wood, carrying parcels, wearing a red scarf and that image stuck with him until decades later later it turns into one of the opening scenes of the lion the witch in the wardrobe and there are so many imaginative moments in his life especially in drawings he was very fascinated as a young adult with norse mythology And he found a book about Norse mythology with illustrations by Arthur Rackham. And they are these fantastical illustrations that opened up his imagination that you can see in the wintry wonderland of Narnia. So yes, there were fairy tales. He was very influenced by the fantasy writer George MacDonald, who wrote the book Fantasties. And he says that that book baptized his imagination. 
So all of these things meant so much to him and are these sprinklings of images and fairy tales and magical lands that eventually worked their way into a land we now know as Narnia. Do you think it was controversial back in 1950 that C.S. Lewis might be drawing connections between Norse mythology and Christian thinking? Or was this just a way of relating meaning? What are your thoughts, Patty? Oh, I think, I don't think it was controversial at all. I think that he was alchemizing, transforming, changing, and using these things of the world and and making them for us this representation of Christ. And he was taking what we might call ordinary and reminding us of what the biblical story is. And when he was asked about it over and over, is, is Aslan Jesus, right? Is this, did you mean this for this? He often said that he did not mean to write an allegory. He did not write an allegory. But what he did was he, this, these are his words, he supposed that if there was another world and Christ was going to enter that world, how might he do it? So in many ways, he called Narnia a supposal. Suppose there is a different world and he showed up in a different way. What might that be? Well, that is incredibly powerful, and what it does, I feel, is that it unlocks our freedom to be imaginative, and for some people, they say, let's stay with the facts, even if we take the Bible, let's take the words off the page, and let's let's never let our imagination run wild around those, but uh, I suspect here that God has given us an imagination for a purpose, and we're not likely to be drawn to a place where we're overcome by uh, the images and fantasy of our mind to become an alternative reality. In fact, there's a sentence in your opening chapter about George where he says he's read enough books for what else is there to do in bed to know that Narnia isn't real or not real in the way that grown-ups call real. There's something special in the way that children think of fantasy and getting into a role-play type of scenario, different to what we think of as adults. How do you see this idea of uh, one of, of, of the way we might perceive reality? Mm, I love that you noticed that line because I wanted us to see the world through the innocence of an eight-year-old boy's eyes. And yet he's not that innocent. He knows that there is something else, but he doesn't understand yet. And I almost think about it like a liminal space, that space we have between dreaming and waking, that space where our imagination brings in images that make us understand what we're trying to understand And so George very much for me represents the child within all of us. If we can remember when we knew that everything there is in in the world isn't just what we can see, that the unseen is influencing us too. 
And I wanted us and me as the writer to be reminded of that innocence through his eyes. So I love that you noticed that. Thank you. Of course, in your book, George has a terminal illness. Uh, Mm. Is our imagination, do you think, enlivened when we know that we are on the edge of eternity, when we know that we're finite, that we may not be here tomorrow? What does that do to our imagination, especially around these sorts of important issues? Oh, I think that it opens us to, like I said, look at the world, not just what we can see, but the unseen and what might else be out there. And it is often stories or fairy tales or a book by Lewis or, or a Narnia that makes us ache and long for what else there is. As Lewis often says, or is often quoted as saying, which he did say, you know, that if we long for something else, something bigger, something greater, then that must mean we were made for something else, something bigger, something greater. You know, George has imagination in your book, but there's a contrast because your Meg's character, George's older sister, who's studying at Oxford University, she's driven by logic and she sees facts and figures and fairy tales don't resonate with her. You've got a wonderful contrast of the way these thoughts come together. Oh, when I first started writing the book, I didn't see that. And and as I was about halfway through, it hit me that in English, we have one word for word, and it is word. <laughs> but in Greek and Latin, there are two words, logos for logic and mythos for, for myth, meaning the meaning of a story. And in very many ways, George and Megs represent myth, and logic. They represent imagination and logic. And I wanted to show them battling each other while at the same time loving each other. And in that that rubbing up against each other with great love, they both can see things differently and they can both change. And you've got Megs who's saying, Mr. Lewis, you know, just tell me plainly what George wants to know. But she's met with an answer there, which is just another story on top of the story. So the stories are so important in the story that you've written there, Patty. Yes. And I think, you know, that was one of the things that I struggled with the most in the beginning of writing this novel was how do I show those stories? How do I not lecture you? How do I not have Lewis lecture you? How do I take what I see as the seven events in Lewis's life that I see showing up in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? How do I take those and not lecture you, not tell you? So what I have, what I have done is I have Lewis telling Megs, who writes the story in a notebook. Then I have Megs reading that story to George. And then we, as the reader, see Lewis's life through the innocence of George's eyes and heart, so that we are removed three times from Lewis, quote, telling this story. We are seeing it through this innocence, and we're there. When Lewis is hiding in the attic as a child, 
and he is writing and making up a land with his brother in what was called the little end room in the attic. We are with him. When he visits Northern Ireland and sees Dunluce Castle, a medieval remnant of a castle hanging off a cliff over the Irish Sea, we see and feel how Lewis sees this as a child on holiday and transforms that into Care Paravel. So instead of telling you these things, I want you to be there. I want you to feel it and see it with George. Patty Callahan is our guest, and Patty has stayed up late. It's 9 p.m. or after 9 p.m. in South Carolina in the United States. Patty, we are appreciating your, the, the fact that you've stayed up a little later to share these thoughts with us today. Let me lead you into uh, talking a little more about magical imagery. Weaving magical imagery into a story, there's something that strikes a chord with our Christian faith and understanding God and his creation. I wonder if you've got some thoughts on how to how to really tap into uh, that imagery that might deepen Christian faith. Any thoughts in that uh, in that d- dimension? Well, first let me say I am more than honored to be up late to talk to you. It always astounds me that it's Wednesday here and Thursday there. Like you're living in the future. And it's just and yet we're on yep. the same time. So talk about imagination. You know, you're in the next day and I'm in the day before and yet we are somehow in the same time, you know, talking to each other across oceans and time zones and talking about imagery. So how else can you even imagine that? How could anybody have imagined that a hundred years ago that I could be talking to you through a computer across time zones and oceans and land masses and imagination and imagery is what brings us to the next place and the next place in our lives. The power of story and imagery is what we are made for. And I often say that there's this, that if we go back in time, the very first things humans did to communicate with each other, even before language, was through imagery. They drew pictures on cave walls. And then language emerged. But story just grew on top of it. And story is built on story is built on story. Our minds, our brains, all 86 billion brain cells that we have are after one thing. And that is control and making meaning and trying to understand our world. And that's why stories and images mean so much to us because that is how we make sense of the world. That is how we make meaning out of the world. And if we're looking biblically, it is some of our most iconic, you know, the icons we look at, the images of Jesus, of Mary, of the cross. These are images that bring us back to the truth. Wonderful things to talk about in all of that. And no wonder these sorts of stories strike a chord with us because, as you say, we were made 
for this. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation, you might have your own experience with the works of C.S. Lewis, whether it's his uh, Narnia Chronicles or it could be any of our other, other uh, many, many books that he has written. And uh, you can call us 1-800-316-316. Uh, Patty, let's take a call from Penny in Tasmania. Hello, Penny. Welcome along. Hello, Neil. Hello, Patty. Nice to talk to you today. Um, look, I'm an absolute total fan of Narnia in in both DVD and books. And um, I didn't even discover Narnia until I was an adult, just before I was married 30 years ago. And... Um, I, 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 he captivated me, totally captivated me in the books as well. And screw tape letters, um, uh, mere Christianity, oh, so many of his books are just a delight to read. So I'd be interested in reading your books, although I don't read anymore. I can't see to read but I can have someone read it to me. We'll ask Patty if she's going to have an audio book for this particular uh, one. Uh, but, but Patty, your thoughts wonderful. for Penny? Penny, such a pleasure to talk to you. It is, isn't it fascinating that it doesn't matter what age you find these stories? They captivate us. They capture us. They enchant us. They are enduring in their story times and their storylines. And most of what Lewis has written just stays with us. But yes, both Becoming Mrs. Lewis and Once Upon a Wardrobe are in audiobooks. And the woman who reads the audiobook for Once Upon a Wardrobe is this beautifully narrated British voice and she reads it to you and you are just lulled into the story. I heard her narrating the book and I was listening as intently as if I didn't write it because her voice was so beautiful. So I hope that someone can either read it to you or that you can find the audiobook. I would love that, Penny, because it sounds like we love all the same kinds of stories. Yes. It just, just totally stirred up my imagination and it just went wild. <laughs> imagination Penny. is a mighty holy thing, that is for sure. <laughs> yes, Penny. Absolutely. I'm so glad, so glad that God has given that to us. And, um, and I'm just fascinated with Narnia and I'll go back to the DVDs again and again and again and see different things in it in the whole series Penny, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own experience of C.S. Lewis and any of his writings you might like to uh, tell us your thoughts about today. Interesting as Penny's talking about, you know, the thing that sparks our imagination and the fantasy world that you can become part of. And for some, Patty... 
there's a caution there about stories that take you into a fantasy and imaginary world. And they might lead us to the idea that there could be more than one correct answer to a problem. Is it a risky thing, do you think, to venture into a fantasy world? What are your thoughts here? Oh, absolutely not, in my humble opinion, and obviously in the opinion of Mr. Clive Staples Lewis, because so many of his books are filled with imagination. I think what he would remind us to be careful of is what we believe, but the imagination is a God-given and holy thing, and as he says that I mentioned earlier, Imagination is our organ of meaning. It is how we make meaning of things. One of my favorite books of Lewis's is a book called Till We Have Faces. And what he does in that book is that he takes a very well-known myth, the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and he rewrites it and he retells it through his own imagination. So he takes a very well-known myth and sifts it through his own organ of meaning. And he comes up with a brand new story so that we can see the truth in a completely new way. So that we can see the truth through a different kind of story. So if we are being brought to the truth with a capital T, these stories and myths are often the way that that happens. Certainly, it would be a mistake to only intellectualize faith. There are a lot of Christian believers who want everything logicalized. How do you think fantasy and imagination affect the logical mind? Can you really experience both? I mean, sometimes there's a polar difference. Uh, the imaginary, faith-filled, creative, artistic side, and then this, this uh, you know, more logical, uh, hard-edge uh, facts and figures. How, how have you dealt with that in your book? In some sense, you've got that with your two characters. You know, even in the book, Meg's would like a logical list. She tries to make a logical list. She believes that the world is founded on logic and that Einstein will, this is the 50s that this book is set in, that, that Einstein will find the theory of everything and it will explain why we are here. But what she discovers is that logical list will not help her in the things that matter. It will not ha help her in matters of the heart. And I think that if we were reminded of that, and if there's ever a time in our lives that we've been struggling with something, a broken heart, a death, a loss, has a logical list ever helped? Has it ever been someone saying, here are the 10 logical reasons you shouldn't feel this way? Has that ever helped you? Or has it helped because they told you a story where someone else got through it. When Lewis's wife, Joy, died, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And at first, when he wrote it, he wrote it under a pseudonym, a nom de plume, because he didn't want people to know how he felt. And in that book itself, he almost argues with logic versus feeling versus imagination and how logic cannot help us in moments like that. It is story and it is heart that matters 
when it comes to the things of our life that mean something. And if we're going to rely on logic alone, how much of our life and our heart and our God-given imagination are we shutting down out of fear? Where does music come from? Where do these lyrics come from? Art, the most beautiful art and stories and myths, they come from the imagination. I wonder if what you're sharing today and the book you've written, Once Upon a Wardrobe, and reflecting on these stories that C.S. Lewis was so masterfully able to tell, that while we're talking about stories that are simply stories, there is the biblical account of what God has given to us by his revelation. Is this an encouragement when we talk about the sorts of dimensions we're discussing today to return to the parables of Jesus or the creation account or the richness of the sorts of descriptions we'll see in the book of Revelation. Any thoughts here about how understanding these new ideas for for many of us, like getting engaged with our imagination, how that might in fact help us to return to a biblical story and see something even more richly than we've ever seen before? Oh, yes. The imagery is what brings us closer to the story. And, you know, there have been so many movies made in the past years of biblical tellings of Jesus, of the disciples. And, and, and the reason they move us so much is because these stories are taken and they are a hero's journey. Jesus's life from birth to redemption, to sacrifice, to death, to resurrection, these things are not moving us because we list them. They're moving us because they are a story. We are moving from death to resurrection. We are moving from being swallowed by a whale to three days later being spit onto land and being transformed and changing the world. And we are not just watching the seas part, but we're watching them again close in on the enemy. So these are stories that we can visually see and I think brings us closer to the truth. You know, secular thinking knows nothing of this sort of meaning we're talking about today. And finding wonder in those stories, finding wonder in the natural world. This is uh, Bible interaction with nature. This is something powerful here. And, you know, it's difficult to even articulate all of this, but the way that God interacts with his creation and with the people who are his followers, there's something very special about being a Christian and having relationship with Christ. He is, you know, the God who has uh, delivered us and healed us, and he has a future planned for us. All of these things really spark our imagination. Any thoughts around God and his interaction with us like that, Patty? Yes, I think, you know, one of the most extraordinary things that I noticed in writing Once Upon a Wardrobe is how Lewis can take these ordinary moments in our life, which is what I think we need to do, and not see it as so ordinary, right? We're, We're out tonight, is the full moon and to walk outside and look up into the firmaments of the heavens and not be taken by the majesty of creation and the way that God has 
has us and our story in this huge story of the universe, how can we not look up? Lewis often talked about how important it was for him to take walks in nature because that is where God was communicating with us through his creation. So to believe that we can only take things literally and not look at the ordinary and see the extraordinary, that is what Lewis shows us in these stories. Wonderful to draw attention to Romans chapter 1 for listeners who might be thinking about what happens if you maintain that relationship with God and don't let the secularized world hijack your imagination. Hey, how is your book about all of us? Because you've got George, you've got Megs, they're on polar opposites, but you bring the the reader into the story here and this need to have our own curiosity satisfied. How do you see all of us in your book? I think that Megs, who is logic-driven and a math and physics genius, is us. I think George, who lives in this liminal space of imagination, is us. I think there are warring parts of ourselves within ourselves. And if we can sometimes move away from the either or and get and understand the end both, we can marry, meld, merge logic and imagination. In the book, there is a third who comes in, and that is a boy named Padrig. And he enters the scene as this kind of in-between Megs and George. And because in the best stories, the characters represent parts of ourselves, I wanted Megs and George and Padrig to represent the pieces of ourselves that need to come together and not stay separate. The parts inside ourselves that want to plant their flags and say, only pay attention to me, only pay attention to logic, only pay attention to me, live in a fantasy world and imagination, but we can't do an either or this way, not if we want our lives to be whole. What about parents in all of this? I imagine that it's adults who are going to be most inspired by your book, but we might ask if... Uh, We wonder whether children are lost in books today or whether they're lost in video games and how we might understand a little more deeply the power of stories and bringing our children into, as we've been talking about, uh, connecting to the Bible. Any thoughts here? I mean, I didn't call you to have a parenting uh, exercise with us today. I'll talk about that any (laughs) time. But uh, yes, what are your thoughts um, here? Oh, I am a parent and, and, you know, I battled this too, you know, how, you know, stories are so important to our children and literacy and reading, because that is where they realize that there is hope, right? If we understand the what next of a story, they understand hope. And we also understand and know that what goes in comes out. So as parents, if paying attention to the stories that they're seeing and hearing and reading and with the video games, the stories that they're playing, stories impact us, change us, form us, 
And so the stories we are having our children read and watch are forming and changing and impacting them. So let's be careful of what those are. And even in the book, In Once Upon a Wardrobe, I have the parents upset with Megs for telling George some of the sadder stories of Lewis's life. For example, Lewis lost his mother when he was nine years old. He fought in World War I and saw people be killed right next to him. And the parents don't want her telling those stories to George, but she understands that as a child, we have to see that the darkness can be turned to light, that the tough things can be transformed into something magical, and that there is meaning behind the things that happen to us. Wonderful insights today and encouragement that if we are able to expose our children to biblical stories, they contain all of those elements, whether they be negative or not, as to the way that God has an outcome that is beyond those that births hope in hearts. It is wonderful to talk to you once again, Patty. Uh, always love our conversations. Let me point people to your new book and how people can get a hold of it today. There's an official launch coming up here in Australia this uh, early next week, but the new book is called Once Upon a Wardrobe. Patty Callahan, and uh, I might just say here that when you go to your website, Patty Callahan Henry, I imagine that's your full name, Patty, but uh, it's Patty Callahan on the cover of the book. The book is Once Upon a Wardrobe and endorsed by Douglas Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson, who wrote, uh, while it may not be Narnia, there is magic in it. Uh, get a hold of it, Once Upon a Wardrobe. Patty Callahan is the author. Patty, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today and uh, just love our conversation and I hope we get to talk again sometime soon. Oh, I love talking to you. What a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 